Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're going to be reading this morning from the prophecy of Zephaniah. Um, you'll find the reading on starting on page 944 in the Church Bibles. Zephaniah, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, A cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. 
in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Penny, and um, let me add my welcome to Matt's. If you're new with us this morning, my name is Rob. I'm one of the curates here at church. And do come, on, uh, do come and say hello afterwards if you are new with us this morning. Someone was asking me the other day what the plan was for our Sunday sermons in Advent. And um, I explained we'd spend three weeks uh, looking at Zephaniah. And they said, oh, don't ask me anything about Zephaniah. I don't know a single thing about it. And then another person said, Zephaniah, is that in the Bible? And I think that was tongue-in-cheek, but um, after looking at Genesis, we do find ourselves in unfamiliar territory, don't we? I've never taught it. I've raced through it a number of times on Bible read-throughs, but I've never stopped to listen carefully. So when Johnny asked me to preach through it, our vicar, I didn't really know what I was agreeing to. All he said was, Uh, that it's a lovely book, brilliant for Advent, because it's about the coming of Christ. Well, I don't know if you were listening to the reading. Um, I want to say, don't worry, there are some lovely bits. When we get to chapter three, our third and final talk, but the first chapter is, well, almost unrelenting judgment. The second chapter has glimmers of hope, but still judgment. And I think the big challenge is, will we listen? Verse 7 again, verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah wants us to be silent, not because a bit of peace and quiet is nice in Advent, there it is. But the Lord has given, verse 1, do you see verse 1? His word to Zephaniah. And Zephaniah wants us to hear that word. And to hear it, we need to stop talking and start listening. But as the Christmas tunes ramp up on the radio, I'm afraid it's not going to be easy listening at church, at least for the next two weeks. God's word in Zephaniah is two parts judgment, one part salvation. Why that recipe? Well, perhaps we really struggle to listen to God's expose of humanity. Perhaps it's just hard to swallow because it means swallowing our pride. Perhaps because we really need to grasp the reality of judgment before salvation becomes amazing to us. As Matt put it, unless we keep silent in these first two chapters, we're not going to learn to sing aloud when we get to that salvation in chapter three with joy. But don't get me wrong, we need to bear in mind That there is an answer to judgment. Even from the word go, there is an answer from judgment. And if you don't know that answer, then I urge you to come and talk to us about the songs we've been singing, the confession we've been making, the confidence we've been expressing in Jesus' salvation this morning. There is salvation. Just so you know as well, I've not enjoyed prepping this sermon series so far. There have been times when I've been in tears at my desk as I've tried to give Zephaniah a hearing. There are doctors in the congregation, I see, this morning. No surprise. I want to ask, is sharing a frightening and potentially fatal diagnosis what you went into the job for? Of course not. 
But isn't sharing bad news a necessary evil if you're also going to be in the business of saving lives and giving the good news of healing and a long and happy life to come? Well, I don't enjoy talking of Christ's judgment or hell or his anger against mankind. I don't want to teach on this, but I will teach it. He did. Because it's what the whole world needs to know to be ready and to stay ready for his return as our God and King. So are you ready? Are you listening? Verses 1 to 9. Listen to God's coming day of wrath against idolaters. Verse 2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This verse echoes the flood in Genesis 6 to 9. Just like in the days of Noah when God wiped everything from the face of the world, the known world. Even so, he will come again to sweep away everything from the face of the world. The God who created all will now decreate all. Did you see that in verse 3? Verse 3 takes us on a kind of tour of creation as God now dismantles a list of everything from Genesis 1, everything good that first filled the earth, man, beasts, birds, fish. But hold on, is verse 3 a list of things from Genesis 1? I mean, he also talks at the, um, in the middle of verse 3 there about destroying idols, And we've just been doing a whole series in Genesis 1 and 2. Does anybody remember seeing idols in Genesis 1 and 2? But, of course, that's the whole point. There weren't any idols there because idols didn't make the world. So they ought to have no place in the world. But because the world has chosen idols over its true creator, the creator will now decreate the world, giving it what it has chosen. Because to reject the creator, the source of life, is to choose death. So this judgment is just. To reject the giver of blessing and order is to choose curse and chaos. Idolatry, the worship of false gods, is, if you like, the glitch in the matrix, the bug in the code the foreign body invading and infecting creation and leading to its corruption and destruction. And you might say, but our culture doesn't worship idols. We don't um, make little statues that we put in our lounge and bow down before. We know that's ridiculous. We're far more sophisticated than that. Others around the world may still do that, but Westerners have moved on, haven't we? Okay, granted, but we do something just as bad. You see, the ancient world invented many false gods to worship instead of the one true creator God, but we, we reject all gods, including the one true creator God. But it all amounts to the same thing, failing to worship our creator. So the day is coming, a day when, end of verse three, End of verse 3, I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. 
from the big sweeping picture of global judgment for idolatry, Zephaniah now zooms in, in verse 4 onwards, on the local picture in Judah and Jerusalem. And he shows us, well, their idols in particular. Did you see the middle of verse 4? Baal worship. Baal was the chief idol amongst the Canaanites before Israel conquered Canaan. He was a bull god who threw lightning. Zeus was related to him, if you know your Greek gods and the Greek pantheon. People worshipped him to make their crops fruitful and their wombs fertile. Two ancient symbols of the good life, a, a full belly, full with food, full with new kids and new life. And they worshipped Baal for the good life. Even though God, under the terms of the Mosaic covenant that he made with the people of Israel, had already promised to fill their bellies with as much food and their families with as many children as they could ever want if they but trusted and obeyed him. But they didn't. In Zephaniah's day, under King Josiah, you may have noticed in verse 1, it was during the reign of King Josiah. They had actually lost the law of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, again, that we've been studying the first of, they'd lost it. And forgotten that they had lost it. It's unthinkable, isn't it, that the word of God, his law for his people, could be so neglected as to be just wiped from memory. And yet the irony has not escaped me that I have, well, many of us have, so neglected at least this bit of God's word that we now don't know one thing about it. I didn't before I started studying it. One day a priest was in the temple in Josiah's uh, reign and was doing some decluttering in uh, the temple. He'd been... um, watching his Japanese programs, and he came across this dusty scroll, and he blew the dust off, wondering what it was, and started to read in Genesis 1 of the God who made the whole world. And he didn't finish reading until he got to Deuteronomy and its warnings that Israel would be cursed and sent into exile if they became idolaters like the nations around them. Well, it was like a cold shower for this priest. He rushed to King Josiah. Josiah read it too. Josiah became a believer that moment and began to enact religious reforms to root out idols. But he never succeeded. Not fully. Idolatry in Judah was just so entrenched. And just 60 years later, the people would go into exile. In verse 5, we see some of this entrenched idolatry. Israelites simply climbing onto their roofs to worship the stars. And again, we don't worship the stars, do we? But doesn't our culture worship at the altar of science, asking astrophysicists, our new modern priests who hold the sacred flame of the knowledge of the meaning of the universe to explain the meaning of the universe to us? I discovered this week Hawking. Hawking, Stephen Hawking had written a book, um, I think it's Short Answers to the Big Questions of Life. But of course, he's powerless to answer those questions. But all along, the maker is telling us the big answers 
He's telling us what the universe means. If only we would listen, but we won't. I wonder how many Bibles are sitting in homes right now, gathering dust, forgotten, unread. After Baal and star worship, we see a third idol, end of verse 5, Molech. Notice verse 5b, the second half of verse 5. They swear by the Lord and by Molech. This is mix and match religion. Taking a bit of this God and a bit of another and putting them in the pot and stirring them up and making a God to your own liking. Oh, I like grace. I'll have some of that. But I'll leave the judgment out. And you know, I'll add in a spot of our culture's view on human sexuality while we're at it because the God who made and married mankind, male and female, just doesn't suit my preferences. It's what our bishops are doing, arguably. Certainly seems that way to me. But why would I be surprised that even bishops do it? I mean, I do it in all sorts of ways. I love the God of Acts 6 who has a concern for racial equality. I hate the God of the book of James who tells of his hatred for the greedy rich. No, he's not for me. I'm clinging on to my gold pinky ring. Thank you very much. So I'll just quietly delete that bit. Not literally putting lines through it in the Bible or ripping it out, but just quietly ignoring it so that I might make a God in my image to my liking. Even though a moment's thought makes it patently obvious that if God made us, we don't get to make him. We cannot make him to our liking. We must simply listen to who he says he is. But we hate that. And so verse 6, we turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Well, God doesn't let this refusal to listen go on forever. Verse 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. It's quite an interesting test case, isn't it, these next two weeks, if these sermons on judgment bring you to the point of saying, and if you catch yourself saying in your heart or aloud, but I like to think that God isn't really that angry, then please can I urge you just to stop and instead to listen in reverent silence to what he says he's like and what he's going to do. We cannot mix and match or pick and choose. We must simply listen. And notice he speaks with one voice across Old and New Testaments. That's another way people want to uh, mix and match their gods. They say, well, surely God has changed in the New Testament. He's not so judgy then. That's the God I really want to worship. Well, Jesus' words, I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. That's Luke 12. And yet somehow we seem to make him into a cuddly kitten when really he's a roaring lion. Isn't it odd that we afford other humans the respect of listening to who they say they are, but we struggle to hear what God is saying about himself? Verse 8 singles out King Josiah's court 
Did you see that? I will punish the officials and the king's sons. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it seems like the rulers in Judah particularly struggled to listen to the ruler above all. I guess rulers, human rulers, get so used to telling others the way things are and what must be done that they forget that they themselves have a ruler who demands that they to listen. But fortunately, very few people in this room have um, important jobs. You're not bosses of things. You don't run departments. So it's not going to be a problem for you. Would that it were true. Josiah's court doesn't seem like they got the memo about religious reforms. They have a taste for foreign fashions. Did you see that at the end of verse 8? Both in their clothes, end of verse 8, and in their religion, verse 9. Stepping over the threshold, verse 9. Well, that was a religious practice associated with um, what was first... uh, I think it was an Akkadian and then a Philistine god called Dagon, a fish god. You can read about him in 1 Samuel 5. In 1 Samuel 5, God's ark, the true God's ark, was captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines put Israel's God's ark in the temple of their god, Dagon, as a sign their god was greater. But overnight, God humiliated Dagon worshippers. He decapitated and dismembered Dagon's statue leaving it bowing, headless, before the ark. On the threshold, the threshold of his own idolatrous temple. But the Philistines, rather than turning to the god of the ark, simply glued the statue back together and carried on worshipping Dagon regardless, only now deciding they had to jump over the threshold. It's so foolish. But even more foolish that Israel's court, the king's officials and sons, chose to worship Dagon over their own God who had humiliated Dagon. Perhaps they rejected him, though, precisely because he was more powerful than Dagon. Because, well, powerful people don't like being held to account by a higher power. Sorry, I really struggled to get those words out. There were too many vowels there. Powerful people don't like being held to account by a higher power. Verse 9, end of verse 9. They just want to get on with gods who will let them fill even the temples with violence and deceit. That's the kind of religion they want. One of the big ironies, isn't it, about divine judgment Oh, don't we wish there was a higher power to hold our politicians to account, don't we? But we don't want him holding us to account. But you cannot have the former without the latter. Josiah's sons were corrupt, so they corrupted true religion to fit their preferences. But God's judgment fell on them, and not only on them, but the whole of Judah and Jerusalem. Their lives were devastated by the Babylonian invasion. The sons of Josiah were the ones taken into exile and executed. And Jerusalem in their day was razed to the ground. It was terribly sad. Jesus, many years later, on his approach to Jerusalem, centuries later, when it had been rebuilt, he looked at Jerusalem and he wept in Luke 19. Isn't that striking? 
the one who pronounced destruction on Jerusalem, both here in Zephaniah and in Luke 19 when he came in the flesh, foretelling of the day the Romans would invade and do the same thing again, he, the judge, wept. Later in Luke chapter 23, as he was being crucified by Jerusalem, And many daughters of Jerusalem were weeping for him. He turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And as he looks here at the different quarters of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day, he calls all of Jerusalem to wail and weep. Verses 10 to 18 then. Listen and weep. Verse 10. On that day declares the Lord. A cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. Listening to this message, we ought to weep. Jerusalem faced a tragic fate. Their wealth plundered. Verse 13 Their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. All that Jerusalem had worked for, all the beautiful houses they had built, the great vintages they had bottled and cellared, all of it going to be taken away because they were being taken away. Just 50, 60 years, one generation, 586 BC, Jerusalem taken into exile by the king of Babylon to the country of Babylon, near modern-day Iraq. Jerusalem needed to face up to this coming judgment, even if it did make them weep. But instead, look what they do in verse 12. Verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, oh, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. They'd so focused on living the good life and the next bottle of wine that they didn't have time for a sobering message of judgment. They had congealed spiritually like the dregs of wine left in the glass from last night. No one able to grasp that the Lord's warning was real, that the Lord was really God, that their lives were going to be destroyed in an instant. Don't be complacent. Face up to what the Lord is saying. Indeed, he punished them in 586 BC, as he had warned, so that we all might know for certain that he follows through on his warnings. Did you notice, indeed, how there are actually two days telescoped in this passage the day of the judgment coming on the whole world in verses 2 and 3 and 14 to 18 but God moves seamlessly from that universal day to a local day in Judah and Jerusalem and then back to the global day they're telescoped in this sense that they look like one day in the passage but over the course of history we discover they are two days just as a telescope extends, and you realize it's made of two parts. 
But God executed the first day back then so that he might impress upon us the reality of the greater day still to come. Have you ever been to the British Museum? Have you seen all the artifacts we have stolen from this part of the world, from this period? You can see the Babylonian exile. It is historical fact. Please make use of our theft, at least in this way, by seeing that this happened. And weep. Weep at the real lives that were lost on that day. Get steeped in the historical fact of this judgment and then weep again for our world today, knowing that that was just a dress rehearsal for the day that is still to come. Zephaniah wants us to come to terms with the coming day. Verses 14 to 16, he repeats day seven times. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the corner towers. What kind of God brings about this kind of day? A warrior, verse 14, implacably opposed to evil. The God of the Exodus who plunged Egypt into thick night for their refusal to acknowledge him and their mistreatment of Israel. The God powerful to tear down any institution and dismantle all that humans have built and gathered. The corner towers in in verse 16 are the strongest part of the castles of Zephaniah's day and they will crumble because no defense can withstand his judgment. The day is coming and it should leave us weeping. At least one person at Forward has said to me, we focus on sin too much. Do we? I hope our Genesis 1-2 series has rebalanced that if it's true as we've seen the dignity of being made in God's image. But we mustn't play these things off against one another. Indeed, to grasp the dignity of being made in God's image is to underline the depravity of abandoning the true God for idols. But we're not great at facing up to things, are we? Whether it's our failures or a fatal diagnosis, we struggle to hear the truth. We've finally at Forward in the staff team instituted um, some form of staff appraisal. It's terrible news. After my dad was diagnosed with cancer, He refused to come to terms with it. It was just too horrible to think about, so he didn't put his affairs in order. He didn't reconcile with my eldest sister. He didn't speak to his brothers between his diagnosis and the day of his death. He just wouldn't face up to the coming day. My twin sister and I, we tried to face up to it for him, urged him, don't miss the chance. Don't miss the chance to make peace with your family. But he put us off. I've got 10 years to live, he said. And within 10 months, he was gone. And when we asked the doctors why he deteriorated so quickly and where the 10 years had gone, they said they'd never told him 10 years. They'd always said a year at most. It's the Osh effect. We don't want to hear the frightening, sad news. We'd rather choose ignorance than listening and weeping. 
don't be an ostrich. As hard as it is to listen to the horrors that are awaiting our world, please listen. Verse 17. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Oh, if only our world would understand that and turn to Christ. It's coffee time soon. Please don't feel you have to keep talking about this very intense message. I'm just going to be having coffee and talking about the football. Do chat about it if you want to, though. But please, feel free to chat about the week past and maybe the business of the week ahead. Uh, I know this is very intense. But please also, find time this week to really think about what God is saying here and face up to this coming day and, yeah, to weep. The week ahead, it surely can't just be business as usual after a passage like this, can it? We have a message of hope for Sheffield. And can I say again, if you are here and you don't know that hope of God's forgiveness in the light of this judgment, then please come and see me afterwards. (laughs) Don't delay. I would love to share it with you. But Christians... Christians who know that hope and know that our city doesn't know that hope. Weep for your city as Jesus did for his. Verse 18b. In the fire of his jealousy, the jealousy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole earth will be consumed for he will return and make a sudden end of all who live on earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray very simply that you would help us to listen to what you are saying in your word, Old Testament and New Testament, from the lips of your prophets and from your very own. Help us to listen and to weep. Amen.